0: My uh, sound engineer has given me the thumbs up. That means he either likes, is really into the message at this point and is appreciating it. Or it means that the tape is now officially rolling. And since I haven't actually started teaching anything yet, I don't think he's into the message. It must be that the tape is rolling. That's the thumbs up. Okay. Thumbs up. Let's uh, start with a word of prayer. Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your truth and thankful for the opportunity we have to assemble together. We do ask for distractions to be set aside and for concentration. We thank you, Father, for the provision of a nursery worker at uh, some point here for this class, and we look forward to uh, having more people being able to attend because uh, because the nursery uh, service is going to be available, so we thank you for that as well. We ask for your blessing upon our study, and I pray that we might accept the word as it's given and and have an understanding of some of the more academic matters that we study. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We are dealing with some Sabbath controversy this morning. And uh, as we have observed, it would be real great if the uh, chapter ended with verse 9. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. And uh, wouldn't that be great? Except for the rest of verse 9, verse 9b where it says now it was the Sabbath on that day. And so, of course, everything in terms of the miracle is now totally wrong and sinful. And and Jesus should have known better than to to heal this guy on the Sabbath. And because this man has no business carrying his pallet on the Sabbath. And this uh, carrying a pallet home is pretty much... Uh, You know, one of the worst sins you can imagine. I mean, it's right up there with murder, and it's right up there with adultery, and I mean, just carrying a pallet through the streets is it's like, you know, like the man of incest in 1 Corinthians 5. I mean, I can't imagine a worse sin than carrying a pallet home, all right? Am I being a little tongue-in-cheek this morning or a little bit sarcastic, perhaps? Well... We'll look at it, and uh, we want to look at it not in a uh, certainly not in any any mocking sort of way, because the the snares of of legalism are just wretched, and we're looking. Of course, we're looking at at a, at a Pharisaic legalism in this context, but it can very easily be brought in, across into any any uh, framework you want to put it into. If you want to talk about uh, Roman Catholic legalism, we certainly can do that. They've uh, perfected the arts of that over the centuries. Or uh, Baptist legalism or Bible church legalism, categorical legalism. Uh, ooh, then, you know, I say, Pastor, don't go there. We don't want to talk about categorical legalism. Well, the principle is given biblically. And we want to make certain that we uh, can make the proper application to not plunge into any form uh, any form as it manifests itself. So let's spend uh, today dealing with it. And I did not uh, jot myself a note as far as what slide we were on, so we'll just have to rapidly run through them. Point one, point two, point three. Are these the kind of reviews you guys like? Point four. Thought it was interesting under point three, these five porticos daily packed with multitudes in, needs, in need of healing, and uh, found it rather interesting how the critics were not on hand to observe the miracle. In other words, they they saw the man walking out with his pallet, but they didn't see the healing take place. They didn't see any of the conversation take place between the Lord and this man, and they didn't. In other words, this was not a place where the critics typically um hung out in they didn't they didn't uh remain in this gate probably never passed through this gate but when he was walking out carrying the pallet boy they were sure quick to jump all over him see because this is the sabbath day this is the day that these folks are uh assigned to walk around and observe violations see this is their day see it's like um You know, when I was growing up, I was appointed in in the fifth grade, and then again in the sixth grade, I was appointed as a crossing guard. See, you didn't know that about your pastor, did you? In fifth grade, he was appointed as a crossing guard. and got to wear the orange vest and carry the little orange flag and go do the elementary school crossing guard duties. Well... On this day, this being the Sabbath, this is now the opportunity for the Pharisees and all of their associates and minions and so forth. And their job on this day is to walk around and find Sabbath violations, see, where they can highlight what's going wrong in everybody else's uh, circumstances. And so as we read it here in verse 10, So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible. It is not authorized. You do not have the freedom or authority to carry your pallet. See, in whose mind? Well, in their mind. And that should come up fairly quickly as we examine this. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. See, in verse 10 where it's highlighted, it is not permissible. It is not authorized, meaning we did not give you permission to do this. The whole impact being the authority, the uh, basis upon which something could be uh, designated as either right or wrong. See, if something's against the law, you have to stop and say, well, which law? Whose law? Under which controlling legal authority would this then be a, a violation? All right, not to get, wasn't that an Al Gore quote, the controlling legal authority? Well, what is the controlling legal authority of Sabbath violations? In his mind, he he's he has permission. He's doing what he was told to do. And in his mind, being told to do something by a person who exhibited divine power means that God has given him permission to do this. All right? That's the controlling legal authority. All right? Uh, in Kuwait City and back in, in Desert Storm, we... Uh, uh, Basically, we did what we wanted to do in in different contexts and different things. Uh, And one of the things I did uh, in the process of being a a soldier in an occupied city was that we drove up an off-ramp onto a highway, say, and drove, you know, something you would never do. At least I don't recommend it. Driving up an off-ramp, okay? Certainly not here in Austin. You drive up an off-ramp and onto the you know, the the southbound lanes of, of traffic on a particular highway, never mind the fact that you're traveling north on the southbound lanes of the highway. Uh, but you got to that side of the highway by driving up the, uh, the off-ramp, see. And then that puts you on the southbound lanes, headed north, and on you go, getting to where you need to go, that kind of thing. Well, there was no danger at that time, or there was no uh, uh, traffic danger, I should say. There was no... Who was going to pull us over, right? What police officer was going to pull us over and say, uh, "Excuse me, you drove up the off ramp and you're headed north on the on the uh, southbound lanes"? Okay. In any event. What am I illustrating here? This. Uh, there was nothing wrong with it because there was no there was no civil law in place. There was no civil law or law enforcement officers or anything. I mean, there were no traffic laws so to speak, so drive up there, say, and one of my first sergeant first pointed to it and said, well, take us up that way, and I looked at him and I said, that's, that's an off-ramp, isn't it? And he said, yeah, i going to drive up there that way anyway, okay, okay, fine, I'm under instructions, I'm under authority, and if <laughs> there aren't going to be any consequences anyway, all right, now, what I'm illustrating, though, is that laws and the enforcement of laws and what's right and what's wrong and what violates a law and how are violations of a law remedied is is uh, really a, a study that examines a lot of different things from traffic laws to criminal laws to civil laws to earthly laws to God's laws, all right? And so what is this man really in violation of? Uh, are you breaking the law when you drive up an off-ramp? Well, if there are no laws against it, if there's no law in place, okay? You know, does the police officer break the law when he runs a red light in high-speed pursuit? His lights are on, his sirens are flashing, and and he runs a red light racing off to the scene of a crime or chasing a bad guy and so forth? Is he breaking the law because he didn't stop for that red light? Okay? Well... Here is uh, the emphasis in verse 10. It is not permissible. It is not permissible. That is, you are not authorized. You do not have the authority uh, to carry your pallet. And he gives, in his, in his refutation in verse 11, he gives the authorization. He gives why it is permissible. Because he has been given that authority. He who said to me, or he who made me well. In verse 11. The healer, the one with divine power, said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. And so now they want to know, not who healed you, but who extended this authorization. All right? Now, all of that is uh, part of observing that the critics were not on hand to observe the miracle. Point four, we asked the question last week, there were multitudes present. Why weren't all of them healed? Why was it just this one man? Why did he wait 38 years? Why now? In other words, he waited 38 years, couldn't this wait till tomorrow? You know, it's been 38 years. What's one more day? Why not heal him tomorrow so as to not break the Sabbath? Okay. And uh, why not others in need? And all of these were rhetorical questions I think we handled last week. The fifth point, the healed man was criticized for breaking the Sabbath, but he was obeying the Lord of the Sabbath. Alright, slide six. If I'd jotted that note, I would have known. I was looking at slide six. Alright. John five, eleven through thirteen, he who made me well is the one who said, pick up your pallet and walk. See, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than the law is here. The Lord of the Sabbath is here. And the Lord of the Sabbath, Matthew twelve eight, is the one who told him, pick up your pallet and walk. So, if the Lord of the Sabbath tells you to do this, are you then violating the Sabbath by doing it? Of course not. Absolutely not. And even had he not given him the direct order to do this, he wouldn't have been violating the Sabbath anyway. Which we saw under subpoint A, carrying a pallet did not violate any Mosaic law Sabbath restrictions. And when you look at Mark 2 and verse 27, when you look at, uh, which was a, an important principle, let's grab that one again, we read it last week, Mark 2 and verse 27 is a principle. Not a, not a doctrine, not a law, but a principle. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So there is an overriding principle or an underlying principle. You keep that in view when trying to examine other, uh, other matters, other commands, other prohibitions, other doctrines, other promises, other things. Here is a principle that uh, hopefully will keep Sabbath understanding in perspective. The Sabbath was made for, the man, for man and not man for the Sabbath. And then there's the, the concept in verse 28, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. But we looked at Exodus 20 and verse 8 in the Ten Commandments about keeping the Sabbath. We looked at the amplification of that in chapter 23 and verse 12, where we saw that the work being prohibited there was the secular work, was the day-to-day work, was the uh, income-producing work, that is, pursuing your career, pursuing uh, secular income, pursuing your career advancement. Yeah. Likewise, in Exodus 31, verses 13 through 16, we see that it's it's the process of work that's involved in terms of your career, your income, your livelihood, pursuing secular things. When in reality, this is a day that should be set apart for devotion to the Lord. So, whatever you're doing, if you're a if you're a ditch digger, if you're a fireman, if you're a police officer, whatever you are, all right, those things are put on hold for this. You can do that six days a week. Six days a week, you can be the best doctor, lawyer, Indian chief, whatever you are, right? But that one day is when you put your career on hold and you say, nope, this is a day I'm going to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? And in other cases, we're going to see there's no shortage of these Sabbath controversies. We're going to see a number of them throughout the Life of Christ ministry. Uh, The Lord even points out, well, what about the priests? Are they breaking the Sabbath when they're working? Right? I mean, they're working, aren't they, on the Sabbath? The priests and the Levites. And they're singing and they're working and they're offering up sacrifices. And it's, it's their busiest day of the week, isn't it? Kind of like a pastor. His busiest day of his week is Sunday, isn't it? You know, everybody else in the church kind of looks at Sunday as, you know, the Lord's Day and they're not working and they're going to church and whatever. Well, what about the pastor? Is he working on that day? Is he violating Sabbath principles by working on that day? Of course not. Because what the day was designed for, now I don't want to get people confused between Old Testament Sabbath observance and church age observance of the of the Lord's Day, but the concept is similar. Uh, the pastor's working, of course, but he's serving in the spiritual capacity that the day itself was designed for. And that's ultimately why no miracle violates the Sabbath. Because a miracle is a... a application of divine power a miracle is a glorification of god by a faithful prophet a faithful servant someone that was given the miracle to perform they've performed the miracle to glorify god and this day was designed to glorify god so there's by definition there is no miracle that can violate the sabbath are we clear on that i mean is that maybe that's too basic and when we that that kind of thing shouldn't have to be said but you know, sometimes the things that go without saying need to be said to make sure that, that we're all clear on this. No miracle can violate the Sabbath. The Sabbath was designed to glorify God. It was designed to worship God. It was designed to just put secular life on hold for one day a week and focus entirely on the glory of God. So miracles don't violate that. Carrying a pallet home doesn't violate that. Okay although I did point out that, all right, right, let's if this guy, this sick guy, actually was a pallet delivery man, okay, maybe that was his career. And he was a pallet delivery man, and he, he found a way to make money by delivering pallets in different places around town. And he did that seven days a week, and that's how he earned his income, and that's how he fed his family, and so forth. If he was a pallet delivery man, and if he was, in this chapter, Delivering a pallet to somebody in order to receive wages, in order to, okay, then fine. Under those conditions, he would be violating the Sabbath, right? But there is nothing, we understand in this John 5 passage, this guy is not a pallet delivery man. He's not pursuing his career, okay? He's not uh, earning income to feed his family. He's not working in terms of a career. He is obeying the Lord that made him well. The Numbers 15 passage deals with uh, the man that was gathering firewood. I think we covered that well enough. Nehemiah 13 and Jeremiah 17 are the passages that really, really made it obvious that when it says thou shalt not do any work on that day, it's talking about pursuing your your career, pursuing your work. That is, your daily work that you do um, as uh, as a job, as uh, part of daily life, Sunday through Friday. All right? Any questions on that? Am I explaining that well? Work means work. The problem is we use, the English uses the word work for so many different things. Okay? Work is, I mean, we talk about going to work as a place, right? Well, where's that? Well, wherever it is you happen to work. Maybe you work from home. Maybe you work in an office. Maybe you work in a business or wherever you work. We've turned a verb into into a noun as an object. I'm going to work. As if that's a destination, that's a place. Okay? You do the same thing with church, by the way. I'm going to church. All right? Well, by work, by violating the Sabbath, that means you're pursuing temporal life. You're pursuing your career. You're pursuing your job. When that should be set aside to observe the Sabbath. What it does violate, and a point B, is the traditions of the elders. Now, join me in Matthew 15. Matthew 15 does not immediately apply to what we're dealing with this morning, but the concept does. All right. This is a totally separate uh, controversy, but it relates to what we're studying. Because in this text, Jesus Christ is nailing these Pharisees perfectly in contrasting the law versus the traditions. And so we're going to read it, and then we're going to bring it back into John 5 and understand what the conflict there was as well. All right, Matthew 15. And this, by the way, this we've just jumped forward in time a considerable amount. Matthew 15, as we read verses 2 and 3, is going to come up as episode 40 of the Galilean ministry. So this is, we're jumping ahead, uh, a total of 28 events in almost a year In in time. Matthew 15. Some of the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Notice, they didn't accuse them of breaking the law, the Mosaic law, but they were accused, they were under indictment for breaking the tradition of the elders. Okay? And I want to start thinking of these, of these realms um, because it, it's going to be important for us not only in, in this study, in the life of Christ, but I think overall in understanding the dispensation of the church and understanding the role of, of the local church and understanding a whole lot of other things down the road. Um, we can think of it in terms of different jurisdictions. We can think of it in terms of different laws, right? Right. Do you have any concept how many laws you and I are under right here, right now? I mean, beyond, I mean, there's layers and layers and layers and layers of laws. that a lot of folks don't even realize, but we're under, we're under federal laws as far as the government of the United States is concerned. We're under laws of the state of Texas as far as Texas is concerned. We're under uh, the statutes enacted by Travis County as far as, County government is concerned. We're under municipal statutes as far as the city of Austin is concerned. Right? So here's, here's layers of laws. Right? And it's possible that you might violate a law you didn't even know was there. Unless you're really into government studies. <laughs> All right? Unless you. When was the last time you sat down and read the Texas Penal Code? Okay? Has it been a while? And they've got the civil code, they've got the traffic code, they've got the criminal code, they've got a number of different uh, branches within the Texas state penal code. Now, Israel at this time was under Mosaic law. And that's something that God put on them. God put that on them at Mount Sinai. They voluntarily accepted it and said, yep, we'll go with that. All that God has said we shall do. When Moses came down and said, here's the law, and if you do this, I'll bless you. If you do that, I'll curse you. Do you want to function under this standard of, of works and merit and law? And Israel, all the elders simultaneously stood up and with 100% agreement said, yes, we will submit to that Mosaic law. Okay, that's what God put them under at Sinai. Now, these traditions of the elders, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Did God put them under that? Or was this something that over time worked its way into the fabric of of their culture to the point where they were under this kind of a bondage? These traditions had been elevated on par with the law and... some point, were actually placed over the law. Because in their system, in their structure, it was only through following the tradition of the elders that the law itself could be properly understood, properly applied, properly obeyed. See, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? And so, here is where a jurisdiction was then elevated, superimposed and elevated, to where the tradition of the elders became the standard not the law itself. And so when the Lord of the Sabbath arises and when He comes on the scene, He's looking around and He sees what they've done with the Sabbath, well, that wasn't His Sabbath. That wasn't the Sabbath He originally gave. See? You understand what the difference is here. And this is what happens in every venue where a form of legalism becomes manifest. Whether it's the Pharisaic legalism, as is the case here, Roman Catholic legalism, look what they did when they exalted tradition over the Bible. See, they did the same thing after the New Testament was written that the Pharisees did after the Old Testament was written, was that they then exalted a tradition over God's Word. And they said, this is how you'll understand God's Word. Follow these traditions, and this is how you will achieve salvation, achieve sanctification, achieve eternal life, and all the rest. Just follow these traditions. Okay? And it rears its head time and time and time and time again. And it's no different in, in 21st century Protestant legalism, categorical legalism. Every time uh, legalism raises its head, what happens is we have exalted a system and we have submitted that, we have superimposed that over the word of God. So Jesus here says when, when they accuse him, you're in violation. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? See, this is now an indictment. This is a formal accusation that a law has been broken. They do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? He takes it back to the Word of God. In his time, of course, that was the Old Testament. That was the Torah. That was the law. And so we could say, well, yeah, you've got the standard, but this standard itself is violating the law, is violating the Mosaic law, the standard that God imposed. So your man-made religion, your man-imposed religion, is in itself a violation of what God has handed down. And then the specific uh, evidence that, uh, that he gives in his indictment uh, follows. In verse 4, God said, Honor your father and mother. He who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say... And he goes on and exposes their loophole. They had created a loophole mechanism, kind of like a tax shelter. You know, people today come along and they find ways that they can structure their income. They find ways that they can uh, stash away their assets and classify certain things to keep it from being taxed. And they say, see, this isn't taxable because I've done this or I've done that. All right. This is what they've done. And they have taken part of their wealth and kept it from going to their parents. Kept it from supporting their parents. Because they can say, well, this is Korban. This is dedicated to God. This is going to the temple. Right? And so, you know, hands off kind of thing. And they're not honoring their father and mother. They're not tending to their, uh, to their elders in need. Well we'll have a whole lot to say about that when we get to that chapter. But the contrast in verse 2 and 3 between the traditions... And the commandments of God then are what I want to bring back into John chapter five, because when they say it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet, are they viewing that as under the Mosaic law? Or are they viewing that as under their traditions? Well, obviously they're viewing that as under their traditions, and that will become clear as well. In fact, we'll spotlight that here next. He wasn't violating Mosaic law; he was violating the traditions of the elders. Sub point one now under B This is point five, sub point B, sub point one. Nothing could intentionally be carried from a public place to a private place on the Sabbath. Nothing could intentionally be carried from a public place to a private place on the Sabbath. I can't give you a Bible verse for that because it's not in the Bible. But I'll give you a Mishnah reference for that. In the Mishnah, the uh, section titled Shabbat, titled Sabbath, chapter 7, section 2, or verse 2. They're not really versified very well, but you can think of it as a chapter 7, verse 2 if you like, and uh, paragraph L. We'll look at that here in a moment. All right, section Shabbat, chapter 7, verse 2, paragraph L. That sounds like lawyer language, doesn't it? Right? Well, if you check the fine print in paragraph four, section B, subsection A, disclaimer twenty-two with amendments. Okay. <laughs> let's uh, let's examine some of this. Yes. In case you don't have a Mishnah at home, I'll. Uh, Put this up here and let you look at it. There's section L. He who transports an object from one domain to another. That's either from a private to a public or a public to a private venue. In the the case here in John 5, he was going from a public venue, the Pool of Bethesda, taking it home, in which case he was violating uh, because he was transporting an object from one domain to another. Now, let's back up a little bit here. Show you the all of the things here on the Sabbath. I'll, we'll just start with chapter 7. I don't know that we don't want to read the whole thing here on the, the Sabbath. Might just limit it to chapter 7. Acts of transporting objects from one domain to another which violate the Sabbath or 2 which indeed are 4 for one who is inside and 2 which are 4 for one who is outside how so if on the sabbath the beggar stands outside and the householder inside okay i'm not going to read this whole chapter but i'm just going to give you a sampling of it to understand and then we'll skip on down to chapter 7 and then we'll highlight the things that violate the sabbath there okay and Because last week we took the time, we read, I won't do it again this morning, but we read Exodus 20, we read Exodus 23, we read Exodus 31, we saw everything the Bible has to say about violating the Sabbath. Okay? Now, here's what the traditions say about violating the Sabbath. Now, if on the Sabbath the beggar stands outside and the householder inside, okay, now you've got a problem. Because as beggars come to your door, and he's outside your door, he's outside your window, you're inside, and if you give five bucks or whatever, if you're going to help the guy out, you got a problem, okay? Not because you helped a guy out, but because you have just transported something from inside to outside, okay? And if you go outside your house to try to give him five bucks, then you violated the Sabbath because you're carrying on commerce. Um, So they said, well, here's a problem. What do we do with all this? Now, if the beggar stands outside and the householder inside and the beggar stuck his hand inside and put a beggar's bowl into the hand of the householder, Alright, you following that? He's outside, but he stuck his hand through the window with a bowl. Okay, follow this now. Or if he took something from inside it and brought it out, the beggar is liable, the householder is exempt. Did you follow that? Because it was the beggar who stuck his hand with a bowl or whatever, the little bag or hat, and he stuck it through the window, the householder put five bucks in there, or ten bucks, whatever you gave, and as soon as the Beggar pulls his hand out the window. He just broke the Sabbath. Okay. Now, the householder, he's okay. He's exempt because he didn't violate the Sabbath. He, everything he did was indoors. He didn't transport anything from one domain to another. Okay. From indoors to outdoors. He's fine in the Pharisee courts, in the, in the Judaism courts here. Now, the beggar, though, is liable. He's liable. Now, if the householder stuck his hand outside and put something into the hand of the beggar, or if he took something from it and brought it inside, then the householder is liable and the beggar is exempt. So, if you turn around the other way, if it was the householder that stuck his hand out the window, then the beggar's off the hook. He's good to go. He can take the money and go and he hasn't violated any Sabbath, but the householder who stuck his hand through the window, he is guilty. He's liable. The beggar is exempt. All right? If the householder put his hand outside and the beggar took something from it, or if the beggar put something into it and the householder brought it back inside, both of them are exempt. So here's the win-win. Here's the win-win where both can be exempt. Uh, Did I skip one there? Okay. I think I read all down through O. Uh Oh, other things. Oh, yeah. Do you need a haircut? A man should not sit down before the barber close to the afternoon prayer unless he has already prayed. Let's see other things. The tailor. Oh, yeah. Tailor should not go out carrying his needle near nightfall lest he forget and cross a boundary nor a scribe with his pen. See, because you remember the tailor. Now, he may not actually be tailoring. But because he is a tailor, If he's in possession of that needle, then he's guilty. It's going to be assumed that he wanted to tailor. He was looking for ways to tailor. Whether or not he did, he was carrying a needle or a scribe was carrying a pen. Whether or not he worked, the fact that he had a pen with him means that he wanted to. He was thinking about it. He could have violated the Sabbath. Alright. These are some of the laws, let's see. Alright, well let's get the down through chapter seven then. There's a whole lot of these other laws. In a lot of these you're gonna notice some distinctions. Um Here's one, a double stove which people have heated with stubble or straw. They put cooked food on it. But if they heated it with peat or with wood, one may not put anything on it until he has swept it out or until he has covered it with ashes. The house of, now, here's where a disagreement arises. The house of Shammai says hot water but not cooked food. Uh, may one put on it on the eve of the Sabbath. And the house of Hillel says hot water and cooked food. So uh, the house of Hillel was a little bit more liberal there and said, okay, you can do hot water and cooked food. Shammai says, nope, hot water, but not cooked food. The house of Shammai, gee, there, the house of Shammai said, on the Sabbath, they take off hot water place they're on, but they do not put it back. The house of Hillel says, also, they put it back. Okay, You're okay. If you're taking hot water off the stove, that's fine. You can also put it back. The house of Hillel was a little bit more relaxed on that. Shammai was very strict. Okay. Anyway, these were all the uh, yeah you don't you don't want to put an egg next to the kettle because then it might get cooked. All right, let's go down to chapter seven because this is the one that deals with the violations. Boys go out in garlands and princes with bells. All right. Chapter 7. A general rule did they state concerning the Sabbath. Whoever forgets the basic principle of the Sabbath and performs many acts of labor on many different Sabbath days is liable only for a single sin offering. So, if you just absentmindedly forgot about the Sabbath, didn't realize, didn't dawn on you, oh my, it's the Sabbath, and you went out and you did this stuff. Uh, well, you might have done a lot of things during the day, and then you get home at night and go, oh, it was the Sabbath. I did about a hundred different things. Well, one sin offering will take care of all that because it was unintentional, you were absent-minded, you didn't know what you were doing. But he who knows the principle of the Sabbath and performs many acts of labor on many different Sabbaths is liable for the violation of each and every Sabbath. And uh, 7.2, here we go. The generative categories of acts of labor prohibited on the Sabbath are 40 less one. They came up with 39 different classifications of work and we'll look at them here in fact i gave that 200.2 by jesus's day the jewish leaders had 39 different classifications of work by jesus's day the jewish leaders had 39 different classifications of work and we're going to look at them here this morning it's kind of like when jesus said love your neighbor and what did the guy want to know the lawyer looked at him and said well who's my neighbor right and so this question about thou shalt not work on the sabbath the response comes back and then well all right what do you mean by work okay just like who's my neighbor how can i work around this what's the bare minimum i can get away with all right so what exactly is the fine print here so by Jesus' day, the Jewish leaders had 39 different classifications of works. That's also the Shabbat, chapter 7, section uh, verse 2, section A. All right. The generative categories and acts of labor prohibited on the Sabbath are 40 less 1. See, that was kind of their... They're nod to grace, as it were. <laughs> That's why they only get 39 lashes, because 40 was a perfect number. Moses fasted for 40 days. Forty was There was a lot of biblical imagery with the number 40, but they thought, you know what, let's just take one off, and we'll call that mercy. So there was always 39 lashes. Here's 39 acts of labor, 40 less one. He who sows, okay, so sowing, sowing's wrong. Sowing, if you do any sowing on the Sabbath of any kind, Sowing is a Sabbath violation. Plowing violates the Sabbath. Reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnows, winnowing. Um, selecting. So even if you haven't done any harvesting or threshing or anything, if you just stood there in your field and looked at it, trying to consider, hmm, okay, that part tomorrow, that part's going to get threshed. That part's not ready yet. Okay? If you're doing any selecting, You you violated the Sabbath. Uh, Grinding, sifting, kneading, baking. Uh, He who shears wool or washes it or beats it or dyes it, spins, weaves, makes two loops. I think a single loop was okay. But two loops, that was work. Weaving two threads, separating two threads, tying, untying, sewing two stitches, Tears in order to sew two stitches. (laughs) So if you're trying to get ready for tomorrow's sewing, no, that violates the Sabbath also. He who traps a deer, slaughters it, flays it, salts it, cures its side, scrapes it, cuts it up. You know, one hunting trip could violate seven different commandments right there. Seven commandments of Sabbath work are all involved in trapping a deer, slaughtering it, flaying it, salting it, curing its side, Scraping it and cutting it up. He who writes two letters, erases two letters in order to write two letters. So you could write a single letter down. There's a B. But if I put anything after that, then I have written two letters and that violates the command. He who builds or tears down, he puts out a fire. You better hope your your house isn't on fire on the Sabbath. You better wait till tomorrow to put it out. And don't go rescue anything inside and carry it from a private domain to a public domain. Kindles a fire. He who hits with a hammer. And then number 39, he who transports an object from one domain to another. Lo, these are the 40 generative acts of labor, less one. And it goes on. Um... Quantity of straw sufficient for a cow's mouthful. <laughs> Some of these are fun just to read. If you have trouble with um, ounces and grams and other dry measures, and th- I mean, does that confuse you any? Like you're looking at a recipe and it calls for six ounces and your thing measures in grams. and You're trying to figure out, well, what do I do now? You know, we just saw a measurement that was equivalent to a cow's mouthful. How do you measure that? And then once you get it in the cow's mouth, how do you get it back? (laughs) You know, I mean, that really leads to some questions. All right. Now, going back now to John 5. It is not permissible. It is the Sabbath. And it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. The question we ask is from verse 10, not permissible under what? code under what law under what jurisdiction it wasn't the Mosaic law it wasn't in God's absolute standard it was according to the traditions of the elders this man was violating the traditions of the elders specifically Shabbat 7 2 uh, L you're in violation of Shabbat 7 2 L alright point six when Jesus was identified as the one who had done the miracle, he was criticized for doing so on the Sabbath. Verses 14 through 16. When Jesus was identified as the one who had done the miracle, he was criticized for doing so on the Sabbath. Verse 16, for this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the sabbath doing what things miracles healing a man and even worse all right maybe not healing a man but telling him to carry his pallet can you believe that now this identification process is interesting the man who was healed they ask him in verse 12 not who made you well but who is the man who said Do you pick up your pallet and walk? Who who authorized you to violate our uh, commands? Now, as we were reading through the Mishnah there, did you notice the distinctions between Shammai and Hillel? Okay, those were the two dominant schools. There were others. Okay, uh, but the, the the interesting aspect of the traditions of the rabbis and so forth was that a learned rabbi could come to a Understanding and who could publish a finding, say, and maybe if a certain rabbi would have said um, that carrying a pallet is acceptable. If you've been sick for 38 years and you were miraculously healed, then it is permissible for you on that day only to carry your pallet home and store it away for the night. Uh, then, all right, you know, we'd be adding to 7.2L, you know, we'd have a 7.2L1 footnote that Rabbi so-and-so says that an exception can be granted for people with a sickness of 38 years who were miraculously healed and who were carrying the pallets home, so forth, okay? If that would have been in place, this guy would have been okay but he he would have needed a approved rabbi he would have needed someone like Hillel or Shammai or someone else authorized as an authority to publish a finding to publish a judgment okay and so in which case it then becomes very important well who is publishing this finding who is sanctioning this activity who is contributing an additional stipulation to the traditions okay because then it's not binding upon all jews but it would be binding upon all the followers of that school of that thought see so if you were a pharisee follower of hillel for example then you would follow those stipulations that were itemized by hillel and you weren't obligated under shammai because you might be violating a whole lot of shammai traditions but you were okay because you would say, no, no, I'm a follower of the Hillel school. And they would look at you and say, oh, okay, well, then you're a follower of the Hillel school. Then this is permissible for you. But had you been a follower of the Shammai school, this would not be permissible for you. You would be in violation and you would have to face the consequences of being in violation. Okay. So there were schools, there were threads within the traditions depending upon who you were following. See, and so when they ask who is it, uh, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk, it's a couple of things. First of all, it's a very accusatory because, uh, because they were violating all the schools, all the threads, all the traditions. And, it, you know, if there is somebody who is trying to step up and create his own school, well, then he needs to meet their credentials, he needs to meet their. Uh, their peer review process for saying, OK, we're going to approve you to to uh, produce these traditions, to produce this the, these sects or this this line of tradition, as it were. And it's remarkable because critics later on and even today will look back to Jesus of Nazareth and say, well, he was all he was doing was simply trying to form his own school. He gathered disciples and he he taught things that were at variance with other rabbis and he accepted. I mean, they called him rabbi. And so he was just simply trying to fit into the Pharisee Judaism. He's usually thought of as a Pharisee, that he was simply a Pharisee rabbi trying to create a school beyond Shammai and Hillel. All right. The fact of the matter, he wasn't doing anything of the sort. He didn't want any part of that. And time and time again, he was trying to let the Jewish people know that these traditions were not what uh, God had handed down in terms of the law. Now, the Lord does not let the healing go by without the follow-up for spiritual life application. I think there's a principle we want to learn from this text and start applying it in our own life and our own ministry. The Lord does not let the healing incident go by without the follow-up for spiritual life application. See, afterwards, Jesus seeks him out in verse 14 and says, Behold, you become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. We find out that this man's sickness was actually divine discipline consequences of some particular sin. Don't know what the sin was. Don't need to know. But whatever it was, the sickness that he had for 38 years was a consequence of uh, of his sin, of his sin lifestyle or whatever he was involved with. He does not let the healing go by without the follow-up scene. And that's so important. I think a lot of missionary endeavors are good for a first endeavor, but they lack the follow-up. They, they go forth, they give a gospel message, but they don't follow it up with any kind of teaching. They don't establish local churches. They don't train pastors. They don't begin the process of growth because all they're oriented in is getting folks saved. And then you get them to get folks saved. And then they get others to get folks saved. And you got just kind of this pyramid scheme of getting people saved. And and uh, there's no content. There's no edification that takes place. The follow-up becomes vital. And afterwards, Jesus found him. And I think it's remarkable you know, when he asked him, "Do you want to get healed?" He didn't ask him, uh, you know, "Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Are you uh, trusting in the Lord? Are you?" He didn't doesn't find out anything about this man. If he's saved, if he's lost, if he's going to die and go to heaven, if he's going to die and go to hell, doesn't ask him any of that. Doesn't ask him if he has faith. You know, if you, do you believe I can do this miracle? Doesn't even introduce himself and say, "Well, if I heal you, will you worship me?" None of that. He says, do you want to be well? He heals him. After the guy makes the excuse. Uh, it's interesting. He doesn't answer the question. doesn't say yes. He just makes excuses as why it hasn't happened yet. And then he says, you know, you're healed. Go home. Take your pallet and go home. So, afterward, Jesus finds him. Now, here comes the follow-up. And uh, as we read verse 14, it's interesting. Where does he find this man? In the temple. How did this man respond to a divine work of grace in his life? He responds, as we say, with our terminology, he responds with positive volition. God had done a healing work in him as a gift of grace. Up front, there's a blessing, there's a healing, there's your wholeness. And how does the man respond? He responds in gratitude. He responds with devotion. He goes to the temple. okay jesus didn't find he doesn't say afterward Jesus found him in the tavern, Jesus found him in the bar, found him in the nightclub, right He doesn't say afterward Jesus found him in you know chasing women carrying on no, Jesus found him in the temple, okay and so there's opportunity then to follow up and uh, uh I suppose we could speculate what Jesus might have said. If he would have found him in a tavern or getting drunk or chasing women or going back to whatever, you know, he, I imagine it would have been quite a different message than the one he gets here in verse 14. Probably would have been something like, well, there you go again and it's going to be worse. And here it comes, you know, but no, he uh, responded. He responded. Some point B, the healed man is delighted at the follow up. He now knows who his savior is and wants to share that good news with others. See, when he finds out who it is, he's able now to announce the source of his salvation. I don't see anything malicious in this. Now, this man was not maliciously reporting a Sabbath violator. This man was not maliciously conspiring with the with the Pharisees in any way. But this man was was excited about what was done on his behalf. And that's the thing, and, and perhaps um you know, if you, if you lead somebody to Christ or you see a brand new believer, someone who's just saved, you'll know what I'm talking about, in, in that there is a, a, a zeal or an excitement or an enthusiasm that, that, that the person is just delighted that they're not going to die and go to hell. That, wow, I'm forgiven. I was blind, but now I see and my sins are forgiven and I'm cleansed and, and I now have a Savior and, and there's, a, there's a joy and you want to go tell other people about that. All right. And this is what this guy wants to do. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus. And I find it interesting, when, uh, when he was with the sheep in, the, in that pool, and all the other sick people were there, were the Pharisees on hand to observe that miracle? No, they weren't there. Likewise, when he's inside the temple, worshiping, are the Pharisees on hand to observe the teaching and to observe the conversation? No. Where are they? Well, they're out there about the grounds, patrolling, finding violators. They're not inside worshiping. They're not inside sacrificing. They're not inside feasting with the priests. feasting. See, And the reason for that is because most of those priests inside there were Sadducees. <laughs> and that's just the wrong political party, let me tell you. Pharisees would not be in there dining with the Sadducees, with the priests, with the Levites. Okay, so they're in the outer courtyard. They're patrolling the precincts. They're in the in the in the uh, Solomon's porch. They're in the various gates, not the sheep gate. They're in the people's gate, and they're in different places. The, the Gentile court. They're, no, 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 never mind. Pharisees would be nowhere near the Gentile court. All right, but they're patrolling around, finding all these violators. They're not inside the temple. This guy's inside the temple. And Jesus is able to give them a spiritual message, an exhortation, an admonishment about, you know, you've got that sin problem and that needs to be be put in the past. You become well. And uh, the next time around, divine discipline is even worse. So the healed man is delighted at this follow-up. He knows who his Savior is. He wants to share that good news with others. And because the Jews aren't in there, the Judaizers aren't in there, he has to go out to them to report uh, that now he knows the name of the one who made him well. It was Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Christ. He is the Savior. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. The Jews determined that Jesus' activity on the Sabbath warranted persecution. John 5.16 The Jews determined that Jesus' activity on the Sabbath warranted persecution. John 5.16 We have an imperfect active indicative of the verb dioko. Delta, iota, omega, kappa, omega. D-I-O-K-O, dioko. 1377 is the Strong's Concordance number. To pursue or to persecute. The imperfect tense is the tense of continuous action in past time. So this was something they determined. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus over time. That is, were as a course of action. They were as a continual practice. From this point forward, their standard operating procedure became a persecution mode. It's not just a one-time only deal. The imperfect, that would be an aorist. It's not an aorist tense. This is an imperfect tense. Continuous action in past time. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting over time, continually, repeatedly, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, when, it, when the Mosaic law gave the commandment about not violating the Sabbath, was the, was the penalty for that persecution? Or was the penalty for that death? You see where I'm going with this? The penalty for Sabbath was death. Numbers 13, when a man was gathering firewood, he was stoned to death. Okay? The murderer was put to death. The adulterer was put to death. Okay? Persecution? 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 Do we find a... Do we find a a, a Mosaic law anywhere of any law of any violation of anything where God says, if a person is guilty of this, then you who are spiritual, go ahead and persecute them. Right? Afflict them. Torment them. Persecute them. Is there a license for persecution? No. Not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament. There's license to kill Put the adulterer to death, put the murderer to death, put the homosexual to death, put the uh sabbath breaker to death, okay, but persecution okay I mean we've got we've got applications of church discipline in the church age for in the new testament where we admonish and we warn and and we rebuke and and we um it escalates at various stages where ultimately you have to put a man out of the local church and in agreement with the pastor and the deacons and all the membership. Okay, But there's nowhere in, in, there's no step along the way where we get a, a persecution license that says if somebody's doing this, well then, persecute them. Pick on them. Afflict them. Make their lives miserable. Say, what is this license to persecute? Well... That's the harassment, that's the manipulation, that's the, uh, the coercion, that's the strong-arm tactic, that is the, the uh, evil of legalism enforcement. Legalism enforcement, see? Persecution. Well, we'll come back to this next week then because the uh, next part here, the Father's work, is uh, too long to get into now. He says, my Father's working verse 17, he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. And uh, you thought they wanted to, in verse 16, they wanted to persecute him. In verse 18, now they want to kill him. <laughs> we'll talk about that. We'll deal with that next week. Uh, class next week will be our last, and then we'll have two weeks off. Uh, no class on the 30th, no class on the 7th uh prayer meeting, I suppose, can still take place. We just won't have, uh, won't have uh, teaching on the 30th or on the 7th. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the message of your word. Pray we might learn the principles of grace and, and uh, learn the snares of substituting our own man-made religion, man-made traditions. Father, uh, we don't want to become a law unto ourselves or we certainly don't want to hold to a righteousness in our own eyes. We just thank You and praise You for these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.